and welcome to the Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento. I'm your host, Max Connor, and I'm joined for the very first time this week by my new co-host, Neil Little. Neil, how's it going? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you for giving me a permanent chair on this podcast. I'm excited to join you guys and uh, share stories from behind the restaurant industry and meet new people with you and hear their awesome stories. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on board. If you didn't listen to last week's show, you should go back and listen to it. Neil was the, our guest. And in addition to being a journalism student like I was, Neil has worked in the restaurant industry in Sacramento for over a decade, knows a lot of people, knows a lot of great places to eat. And we have a lot of fun talking together, so it's going to be really fun to start to build the show together with you alongside me. So today, Neil, we got to have a conversation with someone who's created a bit of a Sacramento institution, you could say. There's not too many Sacramento-only places that grow into 10, 11, 12 locations, but this particular spot has. And on top of that, I don't know that they pioneered sort of this idea of fast, casual, but quality food or the sort of counter service where you order good food and it's served on real plates. But that's what they did way back in the early 90s when they started. And this is Bobby Coyote of, yes, the namesake Dos Coyotes. And he brought along with him his executive chef of 28 years, Mark Cassell. They were a fascinating pair. And to hear them come up with this concept, you know, 30 years ago when looking at where restaurants are heading now, they're now basically 30 years ahead of the curve. You see all the where restaurants are going with all the deliveries and the to-go's and the grab it, sit down and run off. Like they were ahead of the game and now they're thriving and I'm happy to see it. Absolutely. It was fascinating. And Bobby's story of getting that first location open is harrowing to say the least. Their whole tale has a lot into it. Everything from his head chef, Marcus Sal, who was with us. I mean, literally, this guy wrote the handbook Literally, he wrote the handbook on Farm to Fork, which you'll hear about in this interview back in the early 90s. And that's such a huge part of the Sacramento Valley restaurant industry is this concept of getting your produce that morning, whether it be beef, vegetables, you know, whatever protein you want and having it for guests that night. Hearing that he put that together in the early 90s was mind blowing when you, when you think about it really happening in the last 20 years in Sacramento when he was even 10 years before that. It's really cool to see how he worked with the farmers to get them to the point where they could communicate and work with restaurants to sell their product. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. And this conversation was really fun. It was fun to hear how Bobby sort of took his roots of growing up eating Mexican street food in Los Angeles to then falling in love with Santa Fe and kind of then the Sacramento Farm to Fork movement and melded it all into really their own unique cuisine, their own unique concept, and something that has grown in Sacramento to be a place that I certainly enjoy going to. We went there for lunch actually right before this interview and enjoyed a couple of their seasonal specials, and it was delicious. Dose Coyotes has always been one of the spots that is... Well, it wasn't downtown where I lived. Like I would make the trek out to 65th just to go to Dos Coyotes for their paella burrito. I think it's one of the best I've ever had. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, before we get too carried away talking about Dos Coyotes and all the delicious food we want to eat, let's go ahead and jump into our interview that we had a few days ago with Bobby Coyote, owner of Dos Coyotes, and his longtime executive chef, Mark Cassell. Bobby Coyote and Mark Casal, thank you so much for being on the Dine One Six podcast. It's great to have both of you here. Well, thanks, Max. We're happy to be here. 
Right on. So I always like to start, the first question I always ask is what your relationship to food was growing up? What kind of role did food play in your household as a kid? And Bobby, we'll start with you first. Well, let's see. I think the first thing I ever made was a quesadilla, cheese and tortilla, graduated to hot dogs over the open <laughs> flame, which I don't think parents would let kids do now. On the stove, on the gas on stove. On the stove, and then, you know, graduated after that to the barbecue and just, like, putting all the charcoal on there and just spraying all the the liquid on there and lighting it and watching it boost up into the sky. Mm -hmm. and... <laughs> just for one hot dog? Well, at that, point, at that point, it was hamburgers and cheeseburgers and oh i could put barbecue sauce on it and make saucy burgers so okay that type of stuff nice so were your parents into food very much or was it something that you sort of found an interest in actually my parents were really into food my mom was from austria and she used to always cook you know we always ate at home back in the 60s growing up we never really went out i mean if we did it was a very very once in a blue moon occasion that we would go out and usually be Chinese food, which at that point in my life was not my favorite. Mm, okay. And Mark, how about you? What was your experience with food growing up? I grew up in a Sicilian Italian family in New Jersey. Okay. So it's, <laughs> it's my DNA. I was going to say that probably. So you probably almost stopped right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, grandparents lived with me when lived with us when I was small. So learned right from the Sicilians on how to make pastas and pizzas and been doing it since just a little tyke. Wow. That's cool. Was someone making something homemade and fresh seven days a week? Absolutely. First thing in the morning, my grandmother, Serafina Pontron Toffee, she was a woman with big arms because she made the bread every morning. She was up early kneading dough every day. And I'd get up early and help her, and that was my introduction to food. So Wow. That's great. So, Bobby, I know I've read you fell in love with Mexican food in particular growing up in Southern California. When was that moment when you started, or that time when you started coming back to the house and you were eating out of the house maybe as a teenager and, and started to get more into food than the basic thing think, you did as a kid? I would think that'd be about 15. Okay. When we went out there and, and there was a place that opened up called La Salsa. And my friend Don Lukoff and myself would ride our bikes and go out there and then try and make black beans at home. And I mean, we never recreated it the way we really wanted to at mm -hmm. that point, but it came later on. And so Mark, when did food start to look like something you, I mean, obviously you grew up in a household where that's just what everybody did every day. You just made food and made it from scratch. When did you start to transition and think about maybe cooking as something that isn't just done at home, but something you could do for a career long-term? I started working in restaurants in high school and continued in Davis when I was in college at UC Davis, was working at restaurants there. And as I was working in restaurants, I really found that passion of being in the kitchen in a restaurant situation, the stress and all the activity going on. So after UC Davis, I went to culinary school back on the East Coast. What was that experience like of just three totally different experiences, right, of growing up in the home? everyone's making food throughout the day leisurely to then work, going thrown right into the fire working in a restaurant to then all the technical skills that you learned. Did you find culinary school helpful? I was very glad I worked in restaurants before culinary school mm -hmm. uh, because I could refine my techniques that way. And coming out of culinary school, I knew what to expect going into a professional kitchen. And I went up into Napa Valley and worked in some really nice restaurants in Napa Valley from there. 
so the whole process of working in restaurants, then going to culinary school, I found to be very beneficial. Bobby, what was your first job in the restaurant industry? Does the dishwasher at the school cafeteria count? Absolutely. Dishwasher. Sixth grade, sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and then I graduated being the cashier. That's when they had those old-time registers, so we would pop down the quarter button, the 25-cent button, and the 10-cent button at the same time to ring up 35 cents. <laughs> dishwasher, I mean, that's where so many people start, and it's... It's still, I mean, it's the most important job. It's the hardest the job. Absolutely. The, hardest working person is. in the back of the house, for sure. But the cashier job was a lot of fun because all the girls that you would have a crush on would come right down the line. So you got to talk to all of them. There you go. You had a reason to, right? Yeah. Strategist. I like Almost it. as good as being in a band. Would <laughs> <laughs> you able to give out any free food? Were you able to fudge the numbers ever to, you know, certain girl here or there? I never did that. Okay. But when I was 14, I was working at Baskin Robbins, and there was a girl that I really liked, and she came in with her mom. And so I gave her just a little bigger scoop. I mean, I'm not talking like a, a double or anything like that, just a larger scoop. Yeah. And the owner was watching, and right in front of her <laughs> and her mom, he took that ice cream cone took the ice cream and put it on a piece of paper, you know, the wax paper that they uh -huh. have, and put it on the scale and reprimanded me in front of all of them. <laughs> Man. Wow. That's hardcore. Though. That is. It is hardcore, but she appreciated the fact that I went out of my way to try and, you know, give her a bigger scoop, and I think, um, yeah, I think we went out after that. There you go. So I mean, it worked. It worked. <laughs> Sacrifices must be made sometimes. That's right. I mean, in some ways, you know, a little bigger scoop is nice, but now you're getting in, you know, you took a real risk and you're getting in trouble. Just enough to notice, right? But apparently enough that your your boss noticed well, too. Well, Mr. Heisler had an eagle eye, ah, so. Sounds like it. Holy cow. Do you remember and, what and, ice cream it was? Well, you know, they have 31 flavors, so. Um. <laughs> <laughs> One of 31. I know it wasn't butter pecan and it wasn't vanilla. I'd probably say it was Jamoke Almond Fudge. Yeah, okay. a classic. So then, Bobby, tell us a little more about moving up in the restaurant industry and working different places and how that slowly turned into even the thought, that first thought of maybe opening your own restaurant. Well, that thought didn't come until way later. But when I was 15, my neighbor had taken over a restaurant in West Hollywood. And so... I would get to go in there on Saturdays, and they'd give me all the grunt work to do. Like, hey, we really need the bathroom dialed out. Can you do that? You know, just all the little odds and ends that nobody else wanted to do that they would have me do just to get stuff done and keep me busy. I mean, it was never glorious work or anything like that. It wasn't in the kitchen. It wasn't out on the floor where all the action was. Mm -hmm. It was always behind the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's kind of how I started there. And then after that, I started working in another restaurant, which was a health food vegetarian restaurant. I kind of got into the whole healthy thing. And there was a restaurant called The Source, and it was on Sunset and Sweetser on the Sunset Strip. It's not there anymore. I think it's a pink taco or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it was this brotherhood family out of Hawaii. And, I mean, way back then they were doing things like smoothies and they'd have all these, like, hippie dishes like magic mushrooms, which were a sautéed mushroom with different 
ingredients in there. I, you know, it's so long ago, I don't remember what was in there. Very popular dish, though. I don't think it had any hallucinogenics or anything like that in it. Sure, but yeah. it was a very popular <laughs> dish with the brown rice and everything else that they gave with it. And I worked there for about a year, and it was actually a lot of fun. So let's talk a little bit about this fateful trip to Santa Fe where you sort of fell in love with the food and the the art and the colors and everything that kind of eventually it sounds like from what I've read kind of melded these two worlds of you know Mexican food in Los Angeles growing up and now the food and the culture and the feel of Santa Fe that started maybe that idea of what became Dos Coyotes. Well after I graduated high school I was about 18 at the time I went on a road trip for a couple of weeks with some friends and so we went to the Grand Canyon, we went into Santa Fe, and then we, we cut up towards um, Colorado and then heading into Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons and I think uh, Glacier National Park, and then we kind of made our way westward. But we were in Santa Fe for a couple days, and the one thing that I noticed were the purple skies. I mean, mm. they were just kind of cool. And, I mean, we were just not really even there for the food or anything. It was sure. really just like, hey, let's go check these towns out and see what was going on. But then I went back. I think I was probably at that point about 25, and I was hanging out there for about a week on a vacation, and that was a lot of fun. And that's when I started tasting more of the foods. And back in 93, I was on an expedition when we opened up our – when we're going to be opening up the Arden store, okay, which was her second location. And that's really when I met a couple of the chefs that were out there and a bunch of artists. And that was more of a really good R&D trip. Got it. And so when did you and Mark meet? Well, I'll let Mark tell the majority of that. But actually, when I moved up here in 1990 with my um, wife at the time and my daughter, who was 13 months, you know, we were just hanging out in Davis, didn't really have a lot of money. And my wife went out one night with a friend, wandering Wanda is what I called her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and she took my wife to Cafe Donatella, which was in the town and country shopping center. Mm -hmm. And that's where she met Mark that night. And I'll let Mark tell the rest of the story. Okay. So I was working as the chef at Cafe Donatello. Was it? We had restaurants in San Francisco and Houston and Atlanta, and I was running our operation in, in Sacramento. It was a high-end trattoria, Italian restaurant. And Bobby became a very good customer, and we started talking. We started talking about food, and Cafe Donatello, we hit a really bad recession, in the early 90s, I guess it was. And so we weren't doing real well over there, and he was starting this concept, and I had two small children and my wife uh, not working. So I was really looking to get out of the fine dining business so mm -hmm. I could be home with the family. And uh, started talking to Bobby, and he invited me to come check out his restaurants. And uh, we did pretty well together and been there 28 years. Yeah, wow. So twenty. So Dos Cardis has been around 32 years. Or are you into 33? Actually, we're 31. 31, okay. But on May 18th. That was my 32nd anniversary of moving up to Davis. Got it. That's when I sort of say that I left civilization. Although, <laughs> quite honestly, Davis and Sacramento have really come full circle. They really have become great destinations, especially Sacramento. I mean, for dining, 
Yeah, absolutely. But but the one thing I got to correct is Mark said I became a really good customer. I just have to say, thank God for my mom because she was the one who always said, where do you want to go out? When she would come and visit, it'd be, oh, can we go to Cafe Donatello? <laughs> so it was always on her dime at that point. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Tell me a little bit about opening that first location in Davis. I've read some stories about the elbow grease, if you will, that it took to to open that place. And so walk me through that decision. You'd move to Davis. You're going to now open a business in Davis, open a restaurant. You had some experience, but you weren't a longtime restaurateur. You weren't a trained chef, but you decided, hey, I'm going to open a restaurant. How did you come up with this? the concept that while the menu has changed, is still similar today? Wow, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in order to get to what happened in, in Davis when we moved up here to get it open, I have to go back to the fact that I came home from work and my wife said, hey, guess what? I'm expecting, we're expecting, and I saw the writing on the wall. Mm. And I had been running this restaurant for 12 years or close to it, and I knew at that point what was good in my 20s wasn't going to work for raising a family. It was late hours. I mean, I never got home until 3 or 4 in the morning, depending if it was weekday or weeknight. Yeah. So I had to figure out what I wanted to do, and I was really thinking anything but a restaurant. I mean, I was— looking at right. different franchises. Well, maybe I should open a fast frame. And then I realized, I don't know anything about framing. I mean, that's not in my DNA. And there were a few different things like that that I was looking at. And so it ended up that I started looking at La Salsa, which was uh, a taqueria concept. And they're still around. They used to be up here in the Sacramento area, a few of them. But by that time, it had all gone downhill for them. Mm. So... I was looking at that, and the other one called Mrs. Garcia's, which were, you know, kind of like fresh, healthy Mexican food. So at that point, I was getting all the information from these two companies, and I said, you know what? I don't need them. I don't need to pay them a 5% royalty. I've already been doing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just started putting my own thing together. So what Bobby did next was brilliant. He used the connections he had from managing a restaurant for over 10 years and met people who ran their own restaurants. And he would pick their brain, he would sit in the kitchen and prep food, he would work for them for free, all so that they could help him learn and understand how do you open a new restaurant. He even had a friend with an old Atari computer who helped him do some graphic design and come up with a brand and a logo. And he was looking for locations all over Sacramento, hoping to move up here from Southern California. And then one day, out of the blue, his sister called him. And then my sister called me up one day and she goes, hey, you know that site that you're looking for, that shopping center? She goes, I think I found it. It was kind of like, literally like um, in the movie Back to the Future. You know that new sound you're looking for? kind of that similar thing yeah yeah and so she gave me the number for the marketplace shopping center as lady karen fox and called her up told her what i want to do and so she sent me information and it really looked really cool it was very artsy and 
brand new. And so we called her back up and said, yeah, I'd like to, you know, set up a time to come in. And I'd been coming up there every week, literally. You know, it's like I'd get off work at 6 o'clock on Saturday, and then I would drive up to Sacramento and, you know, hang out and leave Wednesday morning for work Wednesday night. You know, I was lucky I was working four days a week, so... It wow. Was, it was one of the, yeah, but they were 12 hour shifts. So, yeah, right. So it was a lot of work. But anyway, had to make it work. So that's kind of how it came about. And that's how we ended up coming to Davis. Got it. And so tell me a little bit about getting that first location open. You know, how did you put together the finances to do it and the know how? And well, with the financing, that's a interesting story because I had saved about $60,000. Maybe it was a little more. And, you know, you got to remember, this was 1990. Yeah, so that's things, a lot. Things weren't a little. But I got lucky because I was an avid saver, and I always, like, put money in mutual funds at that point. And so they did real well, and that's when I pulled everything out, and we moved up. And then, or actually, before I moved up, I was piecing everything together, and I called Karen Fox up and I said, Karen, so how's everybody getting TI loans? I've got all these attorneys. And by the way, this was a total white lie. (laughs) I said, I've got all these attorneys. I mean, the last person I really want as a partner would be an attorney. But that's what I told her, that Mm -hmm. I want to invest in this thing. But if I take all their money, it's like it's not really worth doing. So do you have any banks or anybody that's, you know, doing TI loans. And she, oh, yeah, Bank of Woodland is doing all the TI loans for everybody. And so she hooked me up with this one banker, Marilyn. And so we set an appointment, came back up, met with her, and brought her everything of what we were thinking we were doing, you know, from the glasses to the plates to a little kind of like handwritten sample menu and kind of blew her away with what we were doing and she says yeah we'd we'd love to do it you know you're gonna have to use your money first and then you know they wrote out the proposal and so at that point things were coming along and I had already found a kitchen equipment person that we were gonna use so after I moved up the deal still wasn't signed we thought that it was a done deal my attorneys said oh it's a done deal with the lease but it wasn't Mm. And so, anyway, we're trying to get that worked out, and just everything kind of wasn't really moving along. So I took a job at Chevy's. I worked there for one day, and then I came (laughs) home, and then everything just started hitting. And it was a fun day. It was a fun day. Actually, um, (laughs) Brian Bennett, who has Bennett's, he, he opened Bennett's up, so they're in Roseville and Sacramento, I believe he's opening another one up in the in Placer County somewhere, you know, and he was always nice to me that one day he sent me out to um, the Embarcadero to the Chevy's headquarters to pick up sombreros. <laughs> so it was a <laughs> fun day. Birthdays. It was a fun day at work. And I thought I'd meet some people and be able to, you know, persuade a few of them. Hey, you know, I'm opening this restaurant. Why don't you yeah. come help us out and, you know, get our whole thing together. But, yeah, it only lasted one day. So got the restaurant going. I hired a contractor. I was using my money. I hadn't used the bank's money yet because they said that I had to use my money first. And we're probably 
10 weeks into the project and we had all the rough construction, the framing and the rough electrical, rough plumbing, everything was in, but none of the finished work. And it's Halloween. And I get a call about nine in the morning and it's the contractor, really nice guy. And he calls me up and says, hey, I need to meet with you. I got closed up by the IRS. I wasn't paying my payroll taxes. Mm. So I met with him and he gave me the folder of everybody he was using and just, you know, all the information. But that was kind of the extent of it. And then later that day, I get a call from the bank from from Maryland, our banker, and she goes, well, the president is really too keen on doing restaurant loans oh, at the moment. No. So, I mean, I'm just like, I could just picture the sweat just like flying off my yeah. my brow and my head and everything. But I never told her anything about the contractor. I mean, you just have to wing it. And, you know, I had a letter from them saying that they were going to finance it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I figured, hey, you, you wrote it in a letter. How can you go back? But I never had to even say anything. They they actually Stepped took care up. of it. Yeah, they did step up. So it was a really beautiful thing that they did that because it was pretty scary. Yeah. Now, you're looking at a guy who can't hammer a nail straight into a wall. Well, I mean, that's an exaggeration. I can do that. But... <laughs> I literally know <laughs> Mark's nothing. shaking his head. No, that's correct. <laughs> he knows. He knows. Literally, I, I know zilch about construction. Mm-hmm. I had to get the place open, and the, you know, I'm taking over this contracting thing, and I hired a couple of our contractors, old employees, you know, to help with stuff, and they just made a huge mess, you know, because we were putting mud all over the drywall to get an effect on it. And Mm -hmm. I remember my dad came up and showed him the the site and everything, and he just thought I was freaking nuts. I mean, he was screaming at me. He thought I was crazy. I mean, if you saw this place, I mean, it looked like a wreck. I mean, you know, I mean, it looked like a train had crashed and just spilled everything all over the place. But anyway, we... Had a lot of people helping me out. Mm -hmm. Um, We finally made it to the point where we could get a final inspection. And it was extremely cold. I think at that point, it was either the end of December, very beginning of January, probably the beginning of January. He's up on the roof, the inspector, and the pipes just start popping because they, they froze. Oh, And I'm just like, I mean, at that point, I think I was like 32 at the point or Mm -hmm. 33. And I was about ready to have a heart attack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was I was like (laughs) at that point living on credit cards. I mean, it just, you know, went through all the money, you know, and and I mean, we built as inexpensively as possible. But he says, I don't care about that. I've already inspected that stuff. You'll just have to get it fixed. So that was sigh of relief. And we actually did pass the inspection so that we could open, and I had to get those pipes fixed. So that was a little more money, but we got it all done. Hmm. Wow, that uh, that's quite the opening story. So that was oh, that was cow. chapter one. Yeah. Right. Um, so, hey, no pain, no gain. That's right? right. I mean, yeah. So, when did you know it was going to work? How soon afterwards did you go, people are coming in, people are liking the food, this is this is working? Okay, so the final inspection was a Friday, and we 
had all our produce and everything coming in the next day. And so we were prepping all the food that day, and we got it all made. And then about 5 o'clock, I was going to start teaching the cashiers, and I had the cooks. And, I mean, it was just going to be that one day. I mean, I didn't have a lot of money to train people. Mm -hmm. So I was there. I didn't think it would get that busy. And then people are pounding on the the window. They want to come in because, you know, they've seen this thing in construction for six months. And I, I'm broke. I don't have any money. So I figure, well, if they want to come in, you know, it's probably, what, 10, 15 people. Maybe we'll serve them. Well, we ended up serving a lot more than that. And I think we did, you know, like $550 or whatever that night. But before anything got made, you know, everything's brand new. Nothing's been cooked on. One of the cooks knocked over the butter in the pan that we would use for the tortillas and it just went all over the flat top grill and flames just started like just shooting up. <laughs> and I mean, I thought we were done before we ever started. Yeah. So First we, we had that down. going on, but we did make it through and we did serve a lot of people and that's how the whole thing started. And like I said, we made about $550. It was all cash. So that that helped up yeah. a lot. And then, I mean, we were doing okay. I mean, probably first few weeks, maybe we'd do $500 a day if we were lucky. And then it was 1000 And after, I don't even know how long it was, like a month of that, the Gulf War started. So everybody was just hanging out at home watching CNN right. and... I mean, it got really quiet because that was the first war that was televised live on TV. Yeah. And people were just intrigued with what was going on. So luckily that came and went very quickly. And we still weren't at that point yet. But, I mean, I, at that point I was getting rides home from either a cook or a dishwasher. And, you know, because we only had one car and we had the baby. <laughs> so, you know, my wife had the car and... I figured if worse came to worse, I could walk home, but I always got to ride home from somebody and yeah. leave. And I'd say, well, at least I know we got the nicest sign in the shopping center. <laughs> so I'd always take a look at that. And, you know, I just knew that that I had to just believe that we would get there at some point. Yeah. And that there was no room for failure. I mean, it just couldn't happen. And by the time we got into May, when the UC Davis semester was kind of, you know, beginning to wind down. We were getting a little, a lot busier. Good. So it was good. Although there was, at that point, there was a little Caesars next to us. And their manager kept telling me, well, you might be busy now, but just wait till all the students leave. Mm -hmm. You're going to be dead. I mean, this guy was really positive. Yeah, but, sounds like it. <laughs> so, I mean, he put the fear of God into <laughs> me. But, but that never happened. I mean, we kind of maintained through the summer and... And made it through the first year. And by the first year, I think I made more than I did working for my old job. Wow. Or about the same. Paid off the bank. I mean, the loan wasn't that big. Yeah. And we didn't have a lot of employees, so we actually did okay. And then we got reviewed by the Sacramento Bee, and it just, that was it. After that, we were, we were on our way. Wow. That's great. So let's talk a little bit about how the food changed over the years. Maybe we'll start with Mark. Mark, what intrigued you 
coming from your long history and working in Napa and then at a fine dining Italian restaurant to moving over to cook, you know, more fast, casual, really high quality food. But what was what intrigued you about moving over to Dos Coyotes and how has the food changed over the years? So I was really appreciating Bobby's concept of fresh food made with really high quality ingredients. And we still keep that throughout the restaurants mm-hmm. now. The core menu has not changed a whole lot, and the recipes have changed very little if in a couple circumstances, but mostly it's the same recipes that we probably created and was using hmm. uh, when he started out. Where we do have, you know, fun is with our seasonal specials and we're able to create and uh, we work with all our crews and different people in the kitchens to come up with ideas and help them develop their ideas and work on uh, new items. And that's where we get to be a little bit creative and a little bit different from everybody else in the market too, is that we do have a, a pretty good list of seasonal items that we put out there. Yeah. When we source items, pricing is not the first thing we look for. Mm. It's quality of the product and what we want to serve to people. And then we'll negotiate the price we need to have in order to get it on our menu. Yeah, but ask Mark about the handbook that he wrote. Yeah, let's hear about the handbook. Uh, I was, I was, when I was working for Cafe Donatello and Donatello Corporation, that was when the the farm to fork movement really started in Sacramento, and it was off of Chez Panisse and in Berkeley and mm-hmm. back in those times. And I I did have a relationship with UC Davis. I, I am an alumni, and a fellow named David Vischer was writing the false, Small Farms Handbook, and so I helped him with the handbook on how to sell to chefs. Mm. So. Way back cool. in the early 90s, we were doing farm to fork and working with the local chefs and the local local farmers and farmers markets, and we were sourcing a lot of stuff from them back then. Wow. So this handbook was something that could almost teach farmers how to sort of go to chefs and Correct. tell them, here's our small product. You can start Correct. creating seasonal. Correct. Wow. Like consistency of delivery times and not delivering in the middle of a dinner rush and Things that yeah. they wouldn't really know, and they show up at your back door right in the middle of a rush, and I'm kicking them out. You know, it's like, go away. That doesn't work. Wow, that's fascinating. So, how is since you've been here as a chef in the valley for a long time? Talk a little bit about that shift to the farm to fork movement, which I think you know, people my age or people who moved to Sacramento may think it's just sort of a, a tagline at this point, but that it was a real movement that you mentioned sort of started with Alice Waters and local gardens and local farms, and really. Talk a little bit about that shift and being a part of it over the last 30 years. And that handbook came up before all that. Did it really? Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, that was Way before that. 1991. My degree in, from UC Davis is agricultural economics. Oh, wow. So I had connection with agriculture and farming before. My family, before we moved to California, were all farmers in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So I have relatives still in the Central Valley that are dairymen and cheesemakers and so I have a that, that's part of my family history is is farming also and being Sicilian we always have our backyard garden sure right? so still pulling from the backyard garden so for me it was just this great coming together of all my different passions of, of food and agriculture and growing and being in restaurants and the movement was starting and it was starting to get out of the Bay Area and into other areas and the farmers market scene was great at the time and the Davis farmers market's always been a great source of, of product and unique product and different mm-hmm. colored eggplant and tomatoes and things like that. So we started to incorporate that into Cafe Donatello. And I met the growers and I met the different people that were delivering to the back door, herbs and lettuces and 
uh, all different produce. And that was one of our features there was this grand selection of different produce and different colored produce as you walk in the front door. And so Bobby allowed me to bring part of that over to Dos Coyotes and creating seasonal specials. And I still had the contacts with the growers and the different markets. So when we were starting out at Arden, that's the first location that I worked at, we were able to incorporate that into our seasonal specials. And you, you still see that now. Right now on our menu, you see a lot of asparagus. In a week, you're going to see it all go to grilled corn. And that, mm-hmm. of course, is going to come out of Brentwood. That's, that's going to come locally because we live in California, so everything's within 100 miles. Sure. It doesn't matter whether you source it or not. Try to. It's going to come from within 100 right. miles. Right. Big and small producers are all yeah, right here. Yeah, right here. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're not doing farm to fork in California, you're doing something <laughs> really wrong. Absolutely. Do you have a backyard garden now? You mentioned the backyard garden. I do. Garden. Very yeah. extensive. What do, you have, what do you have growing right now? So right now I'm harvesting broccoli, cauliflower, fava beans, beets, potatoes, kale and then all the summer vegetables will come on after that wow what do you what do you do with all that having such a big garden and you know being a busy chef do you give uh, it to friends or my, my kids my friend, family and friends and i'll do a lot of dinners with friends where we cook together yeah i was just gonna ask do you do you get to do big sicilian family dinners on sunday nights now with the kids are the kids local or nearby enough that you get to see them and do dinners not weekly but we get together okay that's great and they make pasta every time Still from scratch? Absolutely. Oh, man. What's your favorite pasta to make? Oh, I, I, it's like choosing a kid, right? <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite kid? Uh, what's the most common one you make? Um, so it, it's the one that I first started making with my grandmother when I was three, four years old called Capatillo. And it's uh, it's just sheets of pasta you cut into little tri- like squares, and you take three fingers and roll them up. Okay. Little pockets, pasta. Cool. It's the first one I ever made, so it's always that's great. So let's talk a little bit about the concept of Dos Coyotes and where it is today, as far as this idea of the counter order spot. So talk a little bit about coming up with that concept, and also where you see the future of food and restaurants going. You know, I have no idea where it came from. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think you know, I was. I came from working in a restaurant where you had servers mm-hmm. and they'd sell a lot of alcohol and all that type of stuff, which is really a good thing because it helps with the bottom line. Yeah. As far as the concept, I mean, a lot of the restaurants, you know, that people were showing me, they were just regular places you'd order at the counter and it would come on paper plates or like a hot dog um, what are they? Those little hot dog. Oh yeah, the little or, hot dog trays. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And so, there was a restaurant called the Authentic Cafe, and he had these really cool bubble blown glasses and these really cool plates, but they were full service. And I would ask him, you know, well, where do you get the plates at? And he told me that in LA there was a place called the Dish Factory. I don't know if they're still there, but you can buy seconds. So that's what I did. I went and bought all these plates at the dish factory. And then he found a place, you know, you can buy the bubble-blown glasses at this place, you know. And so I just wanted to make the the whole concept a little more unique. And I wasn't even thinking about, well, how are we going to get this stuff out? So originally, you know, a lot of the cooks would bring the plates out when we first opened up in Davis. Mm -hmm. But it just kind of evolved and the whole idea was to, you know, 
to higher quality food than just a regular fast food type place and have it kind of like restaurant quality and then serve it on a real plate. Yeah. But not just any plate, you know, and it had to be a cool plate. And these were <laughs> Coors China. And later on, we started bringing in Fiesta Wear, and it was kind of harder to get the Coors China. But I still have some of the original plates. And that's oh, kind wow. of how that started. And I don't know if there were any other restaurants doing that at the time. I know that once we had done it for about three years, that Randy Perigary and Kurtz Bataro were looking to do something. And we thought they were going to do something, you know, the same type of thing with Mexican food. But they kind of opened up Centro mm. and did the full service thing with that. But then Bernardo's, right. if you think about it, is the same type of concept that Dose had been doing. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. So, I mean, I'm flattered that they took I, our idea and that they kind of created their own with it. So that's kind of how it started evolving. For This is for both of you. What are you two? You've both been doing this for a long time. There's, you have, how many locations are there now officially? Is it, is it 10? Is it, do you know off the top of your head? <laughs> I think it's 11. Back okay. to 11. Back to 11. All right. And what do you still love about it today? Mark, is it still for you about the food and getting to test recipes or some of it about the mentoring of chefs and watching where people go from there? What do you still love about it today? I, I still do love the food and the energy. Um, it's It's been hard to love the last two years. Sure. Through the pandemic and through employee shortages and changes in regulations. And, you know, I spent two years back on the cook's line because we right. didn't know what the business could be like. So we were cutting back and it, but we're coming out of it now and I'm starting to feel that passion again and starting to get back in the kitchen and create new items. And we just came out with our first plant-based item. Um, that's in, in a couple of our locations right now. So getting back out of the pandemic and back into the creativity part of it and the people part of it and seeing smiles again, not masks is, is kind of nice. And yeah. It was the, we had our first 100 day, 100 degree day the other, you know, this week. That's right. And it was so nice not to be in the kitchen with a mask on when it's 120 degrees I on bet. the line. That was, yeah. That was nice. That was a good thought, right? How do you guys keep things consistent across all 11 locations? Food wise? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, Mark. all, but really food, food, let's talk food wise. Yeah. It's just constant monitoring and working with people. And we have, We've been very fortunate that we're, our, our staff, our team, our people stay with us for a long time in the kitchen. Mm. We have one, one of our kitchen managers came over with me 28 years ago. We have one in Roseville that was there with Bobby before me. So most of our kitchen managers have been there at least 10 years, if not 20 years. Wow. Prep cooks, too, that have been there since you know, 20, 25 years in the making, which makes my job a whole lot easier than yeah. it would be otherwise. But it's still constant monitoring and tasting and going into restaurants and trying to keep it. And what would I taste from one restaurant to the next at Dos Coyotes? To me, it might be off. But when I get comments from the general public, it's mostly that is very consistent throughout the locations. Yeah. And when Mark says it might be off, it's only because... And we don't mean off in flavor that the two might just be a little different because we don't have a commissary. Right. Every restaurant makes the food so that the food is fresh in every restaurant. So they follow the recipes, but sometimes 
one salsa might be just a little different and just might be the tomatoes. Sure. Yeah. A case of tomatillos isn't the same all the time. Right. So you're adjusting sugar levels and salt levels and things like that for different salsas based on what came in the back door sometimes. Yeah. Bobby, what do you still love about it, running all these locations, and what what keeps you driving forward? The last couple of years, it's been rough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it, it it's really hard to say. I think a lot of it is just meeting the people still. Mm. One thing I don't like is being in, in the office. I'd rather be out and about. So if I can do that, that's a lot more fun. Yeah, absolutely. As the owner of Dos Coyotes, Bobby is out and about a lot. They have 11 locations now. At one point, it was 13. As Dos Coyotes has grown and grown over the three decades they've been open, most of them are owned still solely by Bobby. A couple of them are franchised, but his concept of good, fast, fresh food served at the counter and having a longtime executive chef really allowed them to grow the company into what it is today. And more importantly, this concept, as you'll hear in just a second, really allowed them to pivot in COVID. And while it was hell as it was for every restaurant owner, and frankly, for all of us, they were in a unique position to be able to survive. Did you pair the menu down some when you did takeout? How did, how did, what did it look like in the, in the middle of COVID doing takeout? How many locations reopened? Were some of them closed for longer? Like what was the, the process of surviving COVID? It may just be a blackout at this point, but. We wish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, like Bobby mentioned before, we were kind of set up for the situation because we were already doing 35% to go business. Sure. You know, and that flipped to, at one point, 100%. Mm-hmm. We didn't pare down our menu. We did cut back on the seasonal specials because they just didn't sell online like they do in, in person. Um, we had to cut back on, on staff, of course, uh, at certain points when everything was so unpredictable. Uh, but we were set up for success to begin with. We had, what, 13 locations going in, and we got down to 10, and now we're back to 11 before we get into a couple rapid fire food questions, since you both, you know, have been here in Sacramento for a long time. You keep rubbing that in. <laughs> hey, I had brown hair and more of it way back when, sure, yeah. when I came up here. Uh, how has Sacramento changed? You know, you mentioned that it's much more of a destination food wise now, Bobby, than than maybe it was 20 years, you know, shoot, probably Probably post-Great Recession, we saw a real uptick of chefs coming back here and opening places. But how has the food scene changed in Sacramento, and, and what excites you about it overall as, as a diner, as someone who can you know go out to eat from time to time? Well, I think way back when, when I first came up here, I couldn't really afford to go to many of the dinner houses. Mm-hmm. So that was like only if mom and dad were up here. Right. And then it would be Cafe Donatello. And I think at that point, you know, there was Biba's, Cafe Donatello. There weren't too many really high-end, really good restaurants at that point. And I think that the scene has totally changed. It's done a 180. And there's so many different cuisines, so many great restaurants that you could go to that are both inexpensive and accessible. Well, maybe not anymore because of inflation. But as well as the dinner houses. There's so many good restaurants out there. Yeah. Mark, what about you? How have you seen things change? Well, back then, the San Francisco Chronicle 
columnist Herb Kane referred to us as a gastronomic wasteland. <laughs> and he was right. Sure. The cuisine closer to Iowa than it was to San Francisco at the time. But now people are attracted. I mean, we have young chefs, men, women, people of color coming in, ethnic, you know, people of all ethnicities opening restaurants that are fabulous, fabulous people doing some great food out there. And it's really exciting. It's become a destination for chefs. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into just a couple rapid-fire questions that are all food-related. And the first one, Bobby, is what's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure? The hot dogger in Davis. The hot dogger in Davis? Yeah, there you go. That guy's been doing it doing it right with hot dogs I, for Ivan a long Franks. time. Franks. I mean, how many hot dog owners, right, who have a hot dog stand, their last name is Franks? And that guy's got more wiener jokes than you can shake a stick at. <laughs> Some things are meant to be. Exactly. That's right. But they, they do have a great bun. They use Village Bakery. It's great bun. Um, the meat's good. So it's not like I eat them every day. Sure. Or, you know, maybe once every couple months, it's like I'll be out there and wow, that looks really good. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, what about you? What as a as a Sicilian eating fresh Italian food your entire life, what's the thing you're almost embarrassed to admit that you'll get and enjoy? The original Taco Bell taco. <laughs> oh, with yeah. fire sauce. Mark, what's the dish from childhood you would go back in time and eat? Oh, my grandmother's Sicilian pizza. Oh, yeah. That was on the counter every day. Oh, man. Come on. That's amazing. What about you, Bobby? Well... My mother used to always make veal schnitzel. She was from Austria, like I mentioned earlier. So, th I mean, she would just pound it so it was very thin, mm. and that was delicious. But as far as the comfort food, as a kid, I used to love to make, Mark said, like Taco Bell tacos, but I used to love to make that ground beef. Yeah. You know, where you just, like, put the, the ground beef in the frying pan, you brown it, break it up, put the spice mix in there with the water and kind of do that. I mean, I still like to do that every once in a while. I mean, I'll add things to it. Chopped onion, maybe some jalapenos, put some diced tomatoes in there and things like that. But it's still, a, to me, a, that's my comfort food. Yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with some ground beef and taco seasoning in a, in a tortilla. And fry your yeah. own shells. There you go, yeah. That was that's probably forget the healthy soft taco thing. No, 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 no that's fried, right. Yeah, fried shells with the <laughs> iceberg lettuce and. <laughs> yep. If we're doing this, we're doing it right. Hey, that's right. I don't mind paste picante sauce. Nope. Yeah. What's a place in Sacramento that's maybe not one of the eight places you're going to read about in food media in town that that you really love? Well. About three weeks ago, I had dinner at the Lemongrass, and it had been a while, like pre-COVID, since I'd been there, and it was still fantastic. Mm. My fam has always been a great chef, and she still is, and that is a restaurant worth going out to if you want something that's going to be healthy and light and flavorful. It's, it's excellent. All right. Mark, what about you? Well, I live in Elk Grove, so i got to give a shout-out to Yoshi Sushi. Okay. It's a oh, Japanese cool. family sushi chef from Los Angeles that did sushi for the stars. And he has a little location in Elk Grove called Yoshi. And he's, I think he's the best sushi chef in the region. Oh, man. By far. 
Neil's writing it down right now. We're, we'll be there. We'll Plans be there are the happening next. tonight. Right. <laughs> hey, are you taking us? Let's go. I'm into it. <laughs> the other one, uh, also in Elk Grove, and it's getting some press, is Journey to the Dumpling. I've heard, yes. I've had heard of them, yes. Fresh dumplings and Elk Grove. So, yeah, we got a food scene in Elk Grove. There you go. That's awesome. All right. Well, Bobby Coyote, Marcus Al, thank you so much for stopping by and being on the Dine One Six. It was great to have both of you here. Well, thanks, Max. Thanks, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Nice to meet you guys. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of the Dine One Six. I hope you enjoyed it. Neil, there was one part of the interview that didn't make it in there, which is that they actually came bearing gifts when they showed up to the studio. And delicious gifts. So I have a confession to make. Through this whole time of people creating, you know, impossible burgers and things like that, I have actively stayed away from trying one a little bit out of fear, but more of fear that I might actually enjoy it. And that fear came true today as they brought in their impossible-esque burrito, and it was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed it. How dare you? You've never tried impossible meat. I know. (laughs) No, it actually, I mean, I tried it years ago, and I didn't like it, and I tried it recently in the last six months, and it's really good. And yeah, they have made this picadillo burrito made with impossible meat. Picadillo is a Cuban and Latin American dish that's sort of stewed ground beef with tomatoes and potatoes and corn and all kinds of different spices depending on the region. And they throw it in with their style burrito and it was it was delicious. I had a few bites before the interview, but I shamelessly finished crushing it cold and all after the interview was done. So And still good cold, which I think is even more points. One hundred percent. It was delicious. Well, that's going to do it for us today. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are at Dine16. And like I always say, this isn't just our show, it's yours. So if you have any questions or comments or prospective guests you want us to interview or any issues of food in town, reach out at max at Dine16.com. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or even better, get out your phone and send a text or an email to friends and family and let them know to listen to this episode, listen to the show. We're talking about food in Sacramento and we're having a lot of fun. The opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. The Dine One Six is a production of the Hear Me Now studio in Sacramento. Join us next week when we have an entirely different type of guest on as we're going to have an award-winning olive oil producer out of Winters, Karen Bond, on the show from Bondolio Olive Oil. Until then, as always, eat something you love with someone you love.